Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is Striking Distance. It's Die Hard in a serial killer thriller, or is it Die Hard in a subpar Eugene O'Neill play? We'll find out. Next, what am I doing? Why am I like like putting a cold open on the show here? Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited because we have a great guest today, Sean Fennessy. Hi, Sean. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to uh, share my insights in my boating career. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the high seas. And Your boating. So this is a, <laughs> yeah. It's a great film for me. We're really excited that you're here. We're big fans of your work on the rewatchables and the big picture and the million of other. Po- I don't honestly don't know how you do the million podcasts that you do, but it's it's an inspiration to us all. Um, y- there's a funny quick story that I have to tell about you and action movies, which is the first time I ever listened to the big picture was the day I left New York City to move to Los Angeles, California in 2019. I was on a train from New York to Boston to see my family for Christmas. And I downloaded and watched Six Underground, the Michael Bay Netflix film, and uh, ended and I was like, I need to process this movie with the help of some podcasters. And I believe I just typed Six Underground into Apple Podcasts. And I was like, oh, the big picture, what's this? And so you you played a pivotal role in helping me understand, honestly, a, a bit of a forgotten action gem of a type so to not, speak not forgotten to me is. liam not forgotten to me it, it, it lives on in my memory as an well, absolutely wonderful yeah. experience well this is why we wanted to get you on the show because you take the action movies seriously and i don't think anyone takes action movies more seriously seriously than phil and i do so we're really excited to have you here what is your favorite action movie do you have a favorite action movie hmm that's a good question. I'm not sure I have an answer for that one. Certainly, uh, the titular film in your podcast series is is meaningful to me. We did a rewatchables about that one. I do love Die Hard. I mean, I, I, f- I find that action movie conjures memories of the 80s and 90s, and it feels like there were just not a lot of examples of that in the 60s and 70s to most viewers and listeners' minds. But I don't know, like most war movies are action movies. You know, The Great Escape is an action movie. So, I, I mean, I love movies like that, mm. too. I don't I don't know that I have necessarily one that I would point to as my absolute favorite of all time, though. Die Hard, though, is a is a no brainer. That's a five star film. That's a that's what un- is your history film. with Die Hard? When did you first see it? Mm, I'm sure on HBO as a kid. I, I vividly remember seeing Die Hard with a Vengeance in movie theaters uh-huh. and, and just levitating afterwards. I mean, I love, 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 love Die Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard 2 is good. Um, Die Hard is is spectacular though, and I think it's just was kind of an instant cable classic for 
an eight-year-old who shouldn't have been watching it mm-hmm. at 9.30 p.m. when a babysitter was taking care of me. You know, just the typical coming-of-age <laughs> story of an move, insane movie kid. Um, but I, 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 I love those movies. It was movies. a hell, I, hell of a time to be a kid. It then. was a great time. It was wonderful. I mean, look at us now. <laughs> 100%. So what is your history... With striking distance, do you remember the first time you was this also an HBO or potentially Cinemax experience? Yeah, this is a good question. So I'm pretty sure that the first time I saw this movie was with my dad, who's a cop, and his wife and my brother. And the reason I think that is because the question, who's the best cop, has been echoing in my family for a long time. And I don't totally know why that became a gimmick, a bit amongst our family. It's something as just to tease our dad with at dinner. But um, I definitely did not see it in movie theaters. I almost certainly saw it on on pay cable. Was it Cinemax? I don't think my dad had Cinemax when I was growing up, so it must have been HBO. You know, there was a divide there. You either had the full movie package with Cinemax and Showtime and the Movie Channel and all the other different cable, mm-hmm. you know, pay cable movie channels, or you just had HBO, like I did. You know, it's privileged to have HBO, but I, I just had HBO growing up in both of my households. So I'm sure that's where I saw it. And um, at the time, I'm sure I thought it was kind of silly. And as I've gotten older, I have come to really appreciate the, the wonderful practical madness of a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it was so fun to revisit it. I hadn't seen it in a really, really long time. And part of the reason I sort of jokingly said Cinemax is because I think a lot of people conflate this movie with The Color of Night. Like, it's a vaguely sexy Bruce Willis movie from the 90s that people, uh, they kind of put, put them together. Someone recently was like, is that the movie where he has, he's like a, he's having sex with his therapist? And I was like, no, no, that's The Color of Night, but you could be mistaken. You... It's the movie where he's having a, a hastily reshot sex scene with Sarah Jessica Parker that is deeply uncomfortable to watch in the way that it's both shot and scored. Um, but yes, it does sort of fold <laughs> fold into to the sort of a weird, uh, the 90s erotic thriller uh, trend that they try to sort of jam in there. Um, and it's, you know, sticks out. Um, yeah, it's interesting to hear your, your thoughts about that, that Sean and, and your memories of it. Cause I had wondered that whole, like, who's the best cop now? Who's the best cop now? Which is sort of a weird catchphrase in the movie. Was that something that was like you ironically attached to and then used, or was that actually a genuine <laughs> conversation that would, would go on in that community? Because of course the reason that we have, one of the reasons we have Sean on the show, as you just mentioned, why we picked, you know, why we were so excited for this movie is because you can speak to being from a family of, uh, the, the son of a, yeah, the son of a cop. I, um, I, there was not a lot of jockeying inside my family for who, who was the best police officer, even though I am, um, Irish American. I, I am not entirely from a family of cops. There were firemen. There were teachers. You know, my dad was really the primary police officer. There were a couple of police officers before him, but um, it was it was it was much more tongue in cheek, much more ironic. I mean, my dad, much like myself, is a huge know it all, and it was always in a leadership position, but also you know did not like <laughs> to be criticized. You know, I, I've taken a lot from my father, and um, so it was a way to kind of needle him. I think by by posing that question in his direction. <laughs> That sounds like quite a quite a way to have a dinner. I mean, it sounds like the way my family related to each other, which was like, "Is there anything we can give anyone a hard time about at any <laughs> point? Then we will do it." That's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna occupy our relationships. Phil, do you want to give us some, some yes. facts, some top line facts about the movie Striking Distance? Yeah, so Striking Distance was released on September 17th, 1993, by Columbia Pictures, which was approximately one month after our last film. 
uh, Hard Target, which was released on August 20th of that year. We're now five years wow. after Die Hard, but obviously still continuing to feel uh, feel its echoes as we will unpack imminently. It was directed by uh, Rowdy Harrington, produced by Arnon Milshin and Marty Kaplan, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Harrington. And it stars... Bruce Willis, Sarah Jessica Parker, Dennis Farina, Tom Sizemore, John Mahoney, Brian James, Tom Atkins, Andre Brower, and Robert Pastorelli. Uh, quite the murderous row of cast. On an estimated budget of $30 million, it grossed $77 million worldwide. That's somewhat of a um, mis, um, sort of misinformative figure, though, because this is considered... Um, somewhat of a of a, a failure or or barely kind of broke even i think in in the us it was kind of it, it's even though those figures would suggest that it was a, a sizable hit that is certainly not i think the perception of um of the studio you know and of uh, the industry at the time this was regarded as uh, at best uh, a, a sort of base hit tolerable return uh, for a major you know studio action movie starring bruce willis um, it has since gone on to have, I think, as we discovered when we announced that we were doing it on the show, some, I wouldn't say like a cultural resurgence, but it seems to be kind of fondly remembered. And it's one of the questions I did want to want to ask you guys, and I'm really interested in your perspective on this, Sean. It's, it's like the difference between a movie that you might call mediocre, right? Like if we're being unkind, because it is a mediocre movie. We, we like it, and we're going to get into that. But a mediocre movie of the 90s versus a mediocre movie now, a mediocre movie of the 90s is eminently watchable and thoroughly entertaining, you know? And I'm, I, whereas uh, often, the, the, especially I think the straight to streaming movies now that are, are mediocre are often unwatchable, you know? So, and why is that? I have my opinions on that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Sean. Well, that is a very good question. And certainly the kind of thing that I ponder on a regular basis on the shows that I'm on. Um, I think... <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> some of it is 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 obviously just the, the rose-colored glasses of our particular generation's, you know, p perspective on the way that stories were told when we were kids. You know, and that it's... I'm not sure that there is an objective truth in the fact that Striking Distance is better than Heart of Stone, the new Gal Gadot action movie that is on Netflix this week. But, but <laughs> I, I'll say a couple <laughs> things about that that is important to this. One, you've got um, a Hollywood system that operates completely differently. So you've got people working in action movies who love movies and care deeply about the way that movies are made in the 1990s in a way that is not quite true of the 2020s it's a harder business to be in now it's become much more alg algorithmicized as many people know a lot of people who run studios are not um are not art first um they're not even necessarily business first they're often tech first and so when you put that when you keep that in mind and you think about the way that a movie like striking distance is made you know it's there are no computer generated effects in this entire movie this is a completely practically shot you know balls to the wall action movie it's also like a serial killer thriller as you guys said and um it is a kind of a mystery movie it's this movie about a broken family and alcoholism and you know internal affairs and all these other ideas but like mm -hmm. when it's really rollicking it's like a cool chase movie you know it feels a bit like a kind of a it's kind of a 70s movie honestly i mean it's kind of a neo-noir and i think that a movie like that could very well be understood to be potentially a big success in Hollywood and that there was a reason to have the very best craftspeople, the very best stars, the very best character actors, the very best, um, even, even just marketing and promotional support around a movie like this 
because it was a Bruce Willis movie in 1993. I mean, that's as, that was as big as a movie could be at that time. He was one of the 10 signature stars in Hollywood in 1993. So I think that it may seem like these movies are much better. And for me, they are better personally. Like I'm with you, Phil. But I think the apparatus of movie making has mm-hmm. just changed so much that something that seemed like maybe a two-star movie 30 years ago now feels significantly better um, just because of what we came up admiring and now what we're forced to endure. 100%. Where, yeah, and where the value was placed on on the craft, right? Like the big, the big thing for me, and you nailed all the points there and more, you know, especially with the, the um, practical effects and the, the quality of cast. Often that's something I get so much out of when I return to these movies is just the supporting cast, as we just listed in this movie is incredible, but also the photography. And I was, you know, this, this, the DP on this movie isn't like necessarily what you would call a Hall of Famer. Uh, it's Mac Alberg, who had a few Stuart Gordon collaborations and worked with John Landis on a couple of his sort of um, 90s movies that aren't like his ultra classics. But it, but it, some of the photography in this movie, especially on the on the river with the lights in the background, it, there's a real lush look to it. It has a great dimensionality to it. And there's a sort of flat, depthless look to a lot of the direct history movies in addition to the preponderance of uh, computer-generated imagery and all of, all of that. And, and those kind of effects that leaves a, leaves me feeling a sort of distanced from it. Whereas this, I actually feel like it's a dimensional immersive experience. And even though this isn't like, this isn't one of Bruce Willis's greatest movies, this isn't one of the best action movies of all time or anything, one, or one of the best movies of, of the era, but it is still eminently enjoyable for all of those reasons. There is real craft in this film. And I actually think Row- Rowdy Harrington is an interesting, more interesting filmmaker than what you might think, especially when this is placed in context with his debut movie, Jack's Back, which is also which was the birth of James Spader as a movie star, and is also a serial serial killer story, which has a very inventive structure. So I actually think he has more to say than you might think of from the director of Roadhouse, which was his previous movie. I just think it's a very sturdy um, movie yeah, as go ahead, well. Lynn. Like it's just a sturdily made movie and like it hits the beats in its way. And like I would say that, you know, and we can get into this, there are like there's a weird um friction between the familial drama and the action serial killer elements. But one thing that's interesting that you said, Sean, is like, it's kind of a serial killer thriller. It's kind of a family drama. It's kind of this like, it's all these different things. And often I think weirdly streaming movies gets chastised for that. Like, oh, it's trying to do too many things. But this movie actually also is doing like a multitude of things uh, to varying degrees of success. And, And part of it is that at least at the core, one thing that doing this podcast has helped me discover is really how sturdy, speaking of sturdy, Bruce Willis is in basically any movie he's in, right? Like, he's Bruce Willis. He's one of the great, he's an underrated dramatic actor, I think even despite his later potential acclaim. And, you know, sadly, considering where he is now, it's like, I look back with a great deal of fondness at a guy that really commits. I mean, there's a scene in this movie where he and Dennis fucking Farina are yelling at each other. Like, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't get better than those than than them facing off. Like it's it's the it's the era of the tough guy. And I think there's really it really just works in the in the sense that like it, it feels better because we're 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 looking at something that's sturdily made by professionals. It looks beautiful and and it works really, really well in that sense. Um I think probably for our non- 
you know, our new listeners are folks coming over from Sean's other incredible podcast, The Big Picture, The Rewatchables. We should, they probably know what this is, but maybe we should explain what Die Hard on a Blank means. So, Phil, what, when you say Die Hard on a Blank, what do you mean? Yeah, so real quick, um, this term is um, industry or cultural shorthand for any movie that utilizes that particular storytelling paradigm, um, which is a, of a die-hard scenario, which broadly is bad guys take over a blank, and it's up to one uh, guy or gal or group of folks to uh, to fight back. Um, obviously, the, the die-hard on a blank has been used for, you know, the die-hard on a boat, die-hard on a bus, die-hard die hard on a in surfboard, an ice cream truck there, for those that like uh, various, that film. And What's that film called uh, again? I can't remember. <laughs> Chill, Chill Factor. Factor with Skeet Ulrich. It's on That's the list. Right. It's on the list. It, the, the public are Everyone's clamoring for our Chill, Chill Factor, Factor. episode. They're, the Skeet Ulrich heads <laughs> it, are like... Film Twitter is yeah, lit up about Chill Factor. It's all I hear. When are you going to do Chill Factor? Yeah, on the big picture short come Might on be a let's while, go. guys <laughs> yeah so this but whereas this film but obviously we're, we're tracking the specific diehard imitators on the show the, the passenger 57s under sieges toy soldiers and so forth but we're also looking at the ways that are more subtle that diehard uh, has influenced the action the action genre and it's it, it influenced it in a very specific way with this film because and we'll get to this when we get into the premise. The obvious thing is that this is a, a Bruce Willis movie, but it also, I think, the, the gravity of this film was bent because of Die Hard's influence, turning it from what, what Rowdy Harrington intended it to be, which I think was a serious, um, you know, stood a family drama, murder mystery, uh, set in a very specific cultural milieu which, of his hometown of Pittsburgh, into a Bruce Willis action movie. So we'll move into our section about um, Die Hard DNA, where we kind of pin that. Phil, I hate to down, interrupt you, but it's we'll get a not more Die specific. Hard DNA, as this is a 90s oh, sorry, film yeah. podcast. It's Die Hard DNA. I had to do it. I'm sorry. I had to do it. It's important. It's important to make. For people who like very, Jurassic very specific Park Jurassic Park yes, references. Yeah, that's where we are. That's your that's your section there. We got you covered. So um, yeah, the Die Hard DNA. Obviously, Bruce Willis stars uh, once again playing a detective, just as he did in Die Hard One and Two and The Last Boy Scout, all of which we've covered so far on the show. As as in many of his action movies, Bruce also takes a lot of he is physical a glutton punishment for punishment. Here. It's every movie he gets the shit kicked out of him. It's great. It makes him relatable. I think. He has a pronounced limp in this one uh, because of the car accident, much like McLean at the end of uh, the end of Die Hard. Uh, the the producer of the movie, Arnon Arnon Milchan, very prolific producer, made several Die Hard style films, including the Under Siege movies, Murder at sixteen hundred, The Negotiator. Also made Heat, uh, amongst many other many 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 other prestigious films. And this is another aspect which I'm interested in your perspective on, Sean, is, is although the hero is again a maverick cop, like Die Hard, I think this film has a, uh, a very sus similarly suspicious and cynical view of certain law enforcement institutions, which is something that we've talked about a lot with Die Hard. Even though Bruce Willis is a cop in the movie, that is, a, is, is very suspicious of the police, of the FBI, of state power, and so forth. So um, there is another connection uh, another connection there. I don't know if you have any, any thoughts I, on I, that. I, I do. That's part of the reason you. why I suggested that there's a bit of 70s neo-noir, not quite conspiracy, but there is a conspiratorial element that reveals itself at the end of the movie. I'm not sure if Rowdy Harrington is necessarily like 
in the lineage of Alan Pakula, but he's not not. You know, he's not he's not just making a dumb action mm. movie. And um, I you know, I think that that's reasonable, and that's something that allows for a lot of movies like this to elide the claims of copaganda you know like it's very similar to like the way that humphrey bogart movies bogart could be somebody who works inside the system but outside the system simultaneously you know that willis's characters are often smarter than everyone else a little bit more rumpled than everyone else you mentioned that he gets the shit beat out of him pretty frequently because he doesn't have this imposing physique you know he has to show the audience Mm -hmm. that like he is closer to them than he is to arnold schwarzenegger and that just makes us like associate with him more and i think also like um, it's an increasingly cynical time in history. You know, we're kind of exiting the Reagan 80s and, you know, it's a moment where I think there's a little bit more Gen X mm. skepticism about power in the country. And so I think it's it, it certainly improves upon what could have otherwise just been a noisy crash bang kind of conclusion to the film that's sort of re- revealing, although clearly very telegraphed when you revisit the movie. I mean, I would not say this is a subtle telling of this kind of uh, suspicion of power. <laughs> but when it does kind of rip the cover off at the end, it's it's satisfying. You don't just feel like you watch something dumb. I, I yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Pakula. Um, the other name that I thought of a, a little bit with when I was revisiting this was Sidney Lumet. You know, and 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 movies like Prince of the City. You know, that which are deeply ensconced in a very very specific cultural milieu about this kind of tribal insular culture of cops and what happens when people kind of cross these lines of loyalty. I mean, they, you know, in screenwriting, we have the term like theme stated, right? And it usually appears within the, you kind of want it to be in the first 10 pages. And in this movie, John Mahoney says, it, I think in like minute two, loyalty above all mm-hmm. else, except honor. And that's actually what this film is exploring. And a movie like Prince of the City or Serpico or many, or a Q&A or many, many Nightfalls on Manhattan, all basically, all, you know, half of Sidney Lumet's filmography in some ways are experiencing or, or exploring that same thematic idea. So I think this film does sort of uh, stand on the shoulders of of those movies that, as you're, as you're saying, from the 70s to some extent, but, it's, it, but it intersects violently with the post-diehard Bruce Willis action movie uh you know trend that was you know that that was uh, that was sort of ratcheting up in this era it also has um, something in common like with a film like backdraft which again is this white working class ethnic families all have the same profession the challenges of like doing a job set against some kind of intrigue whether it's an arsonist or a or a serial killer or someone, you know, a, a, a family member getting revenge, whatever it happens to be. Like I was saying to Phil, it would be an interesting movie to pair with Backdraft because they're both sort of action movies that also there was this moment. And, you know, in the 90s where you got these kinds of movies that were about tribal communities, right? You got this Backdraft, um, The Devil's Own, you know, this this kind of that you don't get in action movies anymore, the kind of regular working class people pushed to extremes and forced to kind of like root out the issues and starring these incredible actors. And like, big ensemble casts, right? Like mm-hmm. the cast in Backdraft is unbelievable. The cast in this is pre- pretty spectacular as well. You know, that's um, that's sort of become a bit of a, a lost art. Yeah, it, yeah, it's still driven by a big, you know, by a big star, Kurt Russell, Backdraft, 
And interestingly, both feature sort of like firemen's balls or police balls, that these things that like really happen in tight knit communities and, and everything goes to shit. Like inevitably there's a fist fight. Like it's <laughs> People very get drunk. Yeah. It's very it feels very specific to like I mean, Sean, I know I think you grew up on Long Island. I grew up in Boston. It's that same kind of like a little bit from my point of view, insular rooted communities uh, that all do the same things and, and there's there's the classic antagonisms between them. It's a funny thing about how these movies are made because Backdraft's an interesting comparison. If you watch Striking Distance or Backdraft, or it's it's not, not dissimilar from a movie like The Deer Hunter, weirdly, where you'd think that all of the people in that town only mm. had that job. You know, you there only there are only cops <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Another Pittsburgh yeah. movie, you know, another, Pittsburgh, another Pittsburgh, movie. Pittsburgh movie. That's right. Um, th- like Barry Bonds is not a does not live in this Pittsburgh. You know, Mario Lemieux does not live in this Pittsburgh. Like this is this is a town of white middle class, somewhat aggrieved police officers. And I mean, Copland is another movie that is like this. There are a lot of movies that are like this. Mm. Um, and it's it's um it's not as common now for a variety of reasons. I think communities like this are are seen much differently than they were by mainstream audiences 30 years ago. Um, but it's not inaccurate. I mean, growing up, most of my dad's friends were cops. And being a police officer is a kind of a round-the-clock profession. My dad worked nights when I was a kid. Oftentimes, he was working 12, 14-hour shifts. And was he working those entire 14 hours? Probably not. He was probably at the bar for some of those times. But he was usually at the bar with other cops. And so these communities kind of form around each other because people are looking for like-minded. It's the same reason some of my best friends are podcasters. You know, I'm just looking for people who understand my perspective on the world. Um, yeah. And so it's a reasonable way to, to make a movie, I think. We, I was going to talk about that a little later. I wanted to ask you about that exact question. But as you brought it up, you know, this, this is a film that precedes uh, a, a series of films that also had an ensemble cast that explored this insular tribal world of urban police cultures. You just mentioned one of them and you guys did an amazing episode on it, Copland, which I just you re-listened blew to for the second it. Sorry, time. I had to. I had if to. you want to do your You Blew It, Sean. <laughs> My hands we'll are tied back. now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we got it. Phil, we got it. End the recording. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there's Copland, then there was The Negotiator, We Own the Night, uh, The Wire, and then TV shows like The Wire, We Own This City, um, Pride and Glory, I love which Pride I thought was Glory. a really underrated yeah. one with with Ed Norton and and Colin Farrell. What what you're from this this world to some extent. Which films do you feel have got it right? Uh, in terms of capturing that cultural milieu, which ones have been accurate, which ones have been inaccurate, and why? I'm fascinated to hear your perspective on that as someone who kind of lived it. Well, you know, not to sound like every technical advisor in Hollywood history, but like none of them really get it right, right? Because they're movies, like they're they're constructs. Mm. I think that there are some movies that maybe feel like a little bit more sincere about the people that they're trying to the portray or the the work that is done in certain communities. Um, I don't. I think I'm much more emotionally open to a sort of more earnest and dramatic portrayal like Pride and Glory or like Copland, these movies that do that feel like much more um less interested in the action and more interested in the human dynamics. Um but that being said, like cops are not poets, and so a lot of the times when you when you hear characters talk in movies like this, it's like that's not really what how cops speak to each other and that's not what they would talk about Mm. you know there's a lot of talk about like the complicated nature of the family and the work of being a police officer 
in these movies. And like, that's not, my dad didn't talk about that. That's not, he, he, his, his life was about the Mets and it was about taking his daughter to soccer practice. And it was about, it could, it might've even been about something like politics. It might've been like what's on TV right now, but it wasn't going to be about the specifics of the day to day of his job. Cause it was his job. So I, I think that like a movie like this is sort of forced to dramatize the very specific aspects of life that most people would not discuss on a day-to-day basis. So it's hard to say like what is accurate and what's not accurate. I just like the idea of a more sincere portrayal of these kinds of, these kinds of jobs because so many of the people who do them are often so taciturn, you know, cops and, and firemen in particular, I find to be like these complex internal guys who are really repressed a lot of the time. Obviously there's women in those roles too, but the men in particular are very repressed and so when you find a movie that sort of like forces characters to open up and talk about their experiences, I'm intrigued by that as somebody who maybe has not always been able to get his own dad to open up about some of those experiences. But that's 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 the interesting thing about the movies, I think. I think there's also like an interesting, I'm sure we'll get into, we have a whole Farina conversation to have, but I, I think this is also coming off an age when guys, uh, the actors in these movies, like, did other things. They were war veterans or they they had been cops in the case of Farina or they'd had these lives and acting was like either a second career or something they stumbled into. And so it's like, you know, Bruce Willis was like a regular guy for a long time before he became this big actor. And you can, I think you can feel that in the soul of a performer, like an actor who's really lived and existed. And, and, and whereas now, you know, actors are so sort of trained and I don't want to be the guy that's reactionary and say that it's like it's it's different than it was but there's a certain amount of like an actor has a persona that's related to acting whereas they used to have like accumulated years of knowledge and I think the there's almost there's an authenticity that comes through when you have a Farina when you have a Willis like a guy who looks like he's had a job his whole life playing these parts and and that doesn't exist in mainstream Hollywood in the way that it used to. It's often to. so polished now that all of those corners and edges and mm-hmm. the re- the reality of it is often sort of sanded off by the by uh, you know these as you say this is a great cast of character actors that could put on a play in a bar in any East Coast city and whatever, right? Like they definitely feel like authentic people that you see in the real world as opposed to sort of polished Hollywood, uh, you know, Hollywood actors. And that does it and end an air of authenticity to the milieu that they're trying to trying to capture. I mean, it always feels like it comes back to Cassavetes for me on some level, this kind of like actors who are real people. And, and you know, you can always draw aligned to a lot of action movies and killing of a Chinese bookie. They're they're not necessarily related, but there's like a kind of white ethnic maleness to these leading figures from the 70s, well, forever. But you can feel it in the 70s and 80s, and it sort of moves into the 90s in this like really specific way. But Phil, should we get into our section, Anatomy of an Action Movie, where we list the tenants, we live in a twilight world, uh, no friends at dusk of the action film, and there are six. Sean, I know you're a tenant guy, so I knew you would be on board with that. <laughs> I, my heart is fluttering. I love it so much. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. As long as it's beating forwards and not backwards. <laughs> so, the tenant is the the thinking man's six underground. The thinking man. That, that's my hot take. Think about that. Or is it the other way around? Have you considered that? <laughs> it goes. It flows in both directions temporally. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The tenets of the anatomy of an action movie are premise, ticking clock, hero, villain, action, humor, and leading lady. For a second there, I feel like I sounded like an AI. I was like, hero. Villain, like it was. Have you been replaced already? (laughs) That are replaced. They're coming for us. Future me to invert, and now I'm here, and I'm in. Not the podcasters. (laughs) No, damn you, technology. (laughs) Leave us something. Oh my god. Um, Yeah. So the premise. um, The premise of this movie is thus. Um, Okay. After he testifies against his own partner for use of excessive force. Pittsburgh homicide detective Thomas Hardy is excommunicated from the tight-knit police department and ends up working for the River Rescue Division, where he becomes embroiled in a hunt for a serial killer who is dumping bodies in the water. As he launches his own unofficial investigation into the crimes, Hardy comes to suspect that the killer may be the very same man who murdered his police captain father years earlier. Now, there's a lot, even that is quite an unwieldy description that sort of shows how there's like five movies packed into this, uh, into this film. And it's only 101 minutes, but it's trying, it's trying to achieve a lot. The ticking clock within that is that is, can Hardy solve the mystery and find the killer before he strikes again? Simple, you know, murder, murder mystery, uh, mechanic. Um, there's nothing particularly revelatory or inventive about this, that premise, I would say, unlike Rowdy uh, Harrington's first film, Jack's Back, which has an incredible structural um, conceit that kickstarts uh, the film. It's, it's real. I really urge people to to seek it out, but to say more would be to uh, to spoil it. But it's it's like we Pete early James Spader. For, oh no, I guess we we can't spoil that. That's fine. Okay, yeah, Jack's Back is well. So, it's just yeah. a it's just a really really right. cool cool thing. Um, I'd just say you know go and watch it. And I think it if when you look at Rowdy Harrington's subsequent films through the lens of the guy that wrote and directed Jack's Back, it does make you think actually there's more going on with this guy than than might meet the eye. But so but this. Also, it's interesting to note that this film, as a serial killer thriller, which is the which is one of the lenses through which we're we're, we're looking at it today, it preceded Seven, which would kickstart the serial killer th- serial killer thriller boom of the nineties. Um, so, you know, that, I think that's worth worth touching on. You know, it's funny because do you guys think of this as a serial killer movie? Like, I don't. I think of this as a Bruce Willis on the river kind of movie. Uh, it's an interesting question. I. Are all of the murders in the second half of the film entirely to taunt Bruce Willis's character? And if they are, does that make the killer a serial killer? Or does that break the definition of what mm-hmm. a serial killer is? Sort of more of a revenge tale than a serial killer, ultimately, right? Yeah. Mm. As opposed yeah. to just a man who's drifting through the world killing strangers. Yeah. That's why it's like it's when I think of this movie I and you know revisiting it I had a def- couple different takes on it but like it's it's a it's a revenge thriller it's also kind of a police procedural it's like but ultimately it's it I think that what you're speaking to is like the lack of 
the slightly schizophrenic nature of what this what is going on in this movie, which is like it's all of these things at but the yes, same this, time. It, maybe that is somewhat of a you know, we've called it Die Hard in a Serial Killer Thrill, but maybe that's something of a misnomer. There was another point that I did want to make here, which I think you guys will find very, very interesting about this, which would speak to this, the tension within the film uh, as to whether it, which is it? Is it a serial killer film, a murder mystery, a family drama, an action movie, all of these things? Robert De Niro was originally attached to play the lead in this film, which I found fascinating because this is not De Niro. This is De Niro in 1993. Right, he is very, very selective about the movies that he's doing, the people mm. that he's working with, the roles that he's picking. Right, he, he's this is you know what like Mad Dog and Glory and This Boy's Life and uh, obviously post Goodfellas and he's he is at the peak of his powers uh, and picking very, very interesting parts and and projects and not just, you know, looking for... Robert De Niro was not, is not doing action mm. movies, is my point. He's doing an interesting part and an interesting story that gives him the space to act. And I think he goes on to basically make a different version of that film. So this film, City by the Sea, is set in this faded town of Long Beach, um, um, New York, and his he is chasing a son who who he thinks has committed a murder, and it's it's actually an amazing performance by by De Niro. Particularly the final scene is is some of the most vulnerable, extraordinary, extraordinarily moving acting I've ever seen him do. So I think that that speaks to what the original intention of this movie was, and then what it ended up becoming. Because I think then they tried to get Mel Gibson. It ended up being Bruce Willis. And yet Bruce Willis still wanted to make a dark drama. That's what he was drawn to. But the studio didn't want that. They want the Bruce Willis action movie, the post-die-hard Bruce Willis. There was an interesting article in the Pittsburgh um, newspaper, because this is 30 years old this year, where he and Rowdy Harrington had fights on set because he was like, "We're what is this movie we're making? We were making a different movie when I agreed to do this script. And Rowdy Harrington sort of says, like, you know, he was difficult to work with. But I think it's because... Bruce Willis was kind of tired of being a guy running around with a gun and wanted to do something uh, different. So I think that that could have been part of it too. Here's an interesting thing about Bruce Willis. Guess how many roles he had in the 1990s? How many film roles did he have? 26. 17. He had 32 film roles in the 1990s. He worked a lot. And he was obsessed with once he created his own stardom, finding ways to subvert his own idea of stardom. Striking Distance, I think you're right, Phil, is an attempt to simultaneously use his saleability and his persona and also undermine it a little bit. What's the movie he makes immediately after Striking Distance? Pulp Fiction. What are the movies he goes on to make in the immediate aftermath of Pulp Fiction? Mm. North, Color of Night, Nobody's Fool. You know, those are supporting performances or very strange erotic thrillers. You know, he goes on to make Four Rooms and Twelve Monkeys and <laughs> Last Man Standing, a remake of a Kurosawa movie. I mean, he's like, he's really searching for a kind of complicated artistry while still being a big time movie star. So I think your reading, Phil, is completely right. And unfortunately, it feels like whether it's Rowdy Harrington or the studio or just the natural sense of inertia that comes from making a mystery as opposed to an action movie the movie is kind of shifting in real time. And what it's really trying to be is kind of changing as you're watching it. 
Well, to that point, like I made this joke early on and I, we, we've been talking about this. This is a little bit like a Eugene O'Neill play, right? And like the one that there's a there's a million connections you could make. But the one that I go to is the most obvious to me, which is and I'm sure a theater historian will will tell me there's another that's closer. But Long Day's Journey into Night, which features the members of, you know, a family for James, Mary, uh, Jamie and Edmund. And, you know, James is the the older, you know, he's the father, he's charismatic, he's charming, he knows everybody. He has this really clear Farina connection where Farina is like the affable guy that people like, but he's, you know, like the alcoholism in A Long Day's Journey into Night, he's hiding in the same way that Farina is hiding this dark knowledge about his family. There's like a really clear corollary between like the golden child who is um, Pastorelli, who, you know, falls apart because of his choices in life and they're hiding the truth about who he is and the fuck up son in this case played by Tom Sizemore and I think a kind of very sad performance who feels like the younger brother who's Edmund and, and the mother in Long Day's Journey Into Night, Mary, is, uh, she's present so she's different, it's different from Striking Distance but she's an alcoholic who is like deeply unwell and in this film she's dead she's gone by suicide if i'm remembering correctly phil yeah off screen as a as backstory it's very significant the absent mother right the, and the absence of women generally in this in this world apart from sarah jessica parker and you know and and the victims there's the kim lee character but this is a world that is pure machismo and patriarchy and right the the female presence and the maternal presence is entirely absent i think totally by intention and it's just as much right? about dysfunctional families or there's a version of this movie that is a dysfunctional more of a dysfunctional family movie and and i you know we'll get into the antagonists and and the as we get further into this but there's definitely like roddy harrington writing and is from pittsburgh and is writing his attempt at some kind of the great American play kind of thing in the, in the, in the spirit of O'Neill or Arthur Miller is definitely another correlation. You know, I was joking that like, it's like a view from the river. Like there's this real drama at the core of this thing. Are we giving about Bruce? Are we, are we giving this movie too much credit? Oh yeah, no, that's what we do here. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you're right. (laughs) We, we, we connect Dostoevsky to striking distance. uh, You like every movie and it's like, no, it's not that I like every movie because there's plenty of movies I don't like, but I'm, I, I feel a need to like, the thesis statement is to take these things as serious the of the movies as seriously as we can, of course, but yeah, we're probably giving it way too much credit. It doesn't mean, I think that whether his intent, you know, whether Rowdy Harrington is, uh, you know, I think some of his influences, like we're saying, were maybe Pacula, Lumet, and perhaps some of these plays. We're not saying that he achieved that, right? Like, I, 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 you know, I don't think it was. That. Basically, there's just a more interesting movie than meets the eye, I think, hidden inside this movie. But I do want to ask you a bit more about Bruce uh Bruce Willis, Sean, and your your thoughts on him. Just to just to talk about this section of the the, the hero, he plays a character called Tom Tom Hardy, a name of another movie star. Uh, Wait, stop, Sean. Do you want to do your Bane character. impression? <laughs> I, I can only do Aiden Gillen asking where You're Bane much is. Vaunted. Where's Bane? <laughs> I can't. I'm stage fright. Uncanny. Stage fright, Perhaps he's um, wondering why you would shoot a man before throwing him out of an airplane. Oh, so good. Liam's a big Love dark knight, rises apologist. Apologist, get out of um, here. The fire How rises, you? guys. The fire rises. The fire rises. This is this character is kind of unlikable, I would say, right? Uh, borderline unlikable. He's like a mopey, sexist, 
immature, self-pitying drunk, right? But Bruce Willis has such charm and charisma that it still makes him, I think, likable and, and sympathetic. Also notable, this started the tough guy with a cat trend. Um, see also Stallone in Assassins for all you tough guy with a cat fans. But I am interested because you've sort of teed it up beautifully, Sean, with, with, with this idea about Bruce Willis being similarly more complex, I think, than, than meets the eye. What are your feelings on Bruce as as an actor, and what are your favorite performances of his? Well, it's a good question. It's a complicated question. Um, I'm certainly a fan of him as a film presence. I probably think of him as movie star first and actor second. I also definitely had a consciousness of him as a um, persona-breaking actor pretty early on because of my obsession with Pulp Fiction, because of that shock of seeing Pulp Fiction for the first time and it being nearly more than an hour into the film when you first saw Butch. And how like stunning that was in a way, you know, the, the the idea that like he was in that movie, and even though it was sold against him, you know, the guy, you know, for the movie to not open with, you know, John McClane was very confusing at the time, and that was I think kind of instructive in understanding like the way that you can kind of disassemble movie structure and movie expectation. But um, I like him quite a bit. I mean, it's obviously quite sad what's what's going on with him, and and you know what happened to him in the business over the last few years i find that really upsetting to think about but i i really appreciate the fact that he was someone who was always kind of searching for a kind of artistic legitimacy inside of the hollywood product because that's something that i'm personally interested in like i really like hollywood and the idea of hollywood being this kind of mass entertainment complex that is still using art to share ideas with the world and you can see in like the filmmakers, even in the movies of his that are like big bombs or that we don't think are very good, you can kind of see what he's after or what he sees, you know, like he makes a, you know, Day of the Jackal remake that isn't very good, but like he's interested in the Jackal and the Day of the Jackal, you know, he's, he is working with Walter Hill on a Kurosawa remake. He's working with Richard Rush, the, you know, director of the stuntman, like he, there's something there. There's He's always looking for something compelling. Now, on the other hand, the, the stories of him working with him at this time are legion about how difficult he was to work with, You know about how much he knew he was a star and he knew he was the box office and he would use that to kind of leverage himself, to put himself in a position of power. But um, I, I have always liked him. I think um, he strikes me as one of the few stars from this era who runs the risk of being forgotten. Um, and I don't mean that to kind of cast any aspersions on him, but... Aside from Die Hard, I don't know if there are a lot of his films that will stand the test of time, if you know what I mean by that. You know, like, I I think a lot of his movies now have, like, I guess maybe The Sixth Sense is probably the only other one that I think probably has a chance to kind of um, persist through time. But, like, movies like Armageddon, which were huge at the time, and, and now are still loved by our generation, I think are kind of a punchline, in a way. You know, we're joking about Six Underground, but Michael Bay has kind of become a punchline to younger people. Um, and I, I, I think like a lot of the stuff that he did, a lot of the chances that he took weirdly worked against him rather than trying to just very neatly protect his legacy with every specific choice that he could have made. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's, there's me on the one side liking him and me on the other side seeing like, how will Bruce Willis be remembered? Will he just be like the Robert Ryan of his era or will he be the Burt Lancaster of his era? You know, there's like a pretty distinct difference between those two actors. And if people want to know more, I think see what Bruce Willis was truly capable of as an actor, watch 12 Monkeys. Because I think that is 
arguably mm. his greatest ever performance. And there was so much more to him than the persona, the, which was essentially John McClane. And often, if you look at his career through this time, it was the Die Hard movies that kind of course corrected him uh, after uh, flops, right? Like Bonfire of the Vanities or Hudson Hawk. Okay, Die Hard 2's out, it's, it's okay. Um, in, in the midnight, it's off some of these stranger choices like North or, or, or whatnot. Okay, there's another Die Hard movie coming out. It, it often just keeps his box office viability alive and perhaps afforded him some of that slack to make um, more strange and esoteric, esoteric choices. Liam and I are endlessly fascinated by the fact that there is somewhere, and we need to get hold of it, a uh, a videoed oh, recording yeah. of True West uh, with him being in it, which is one of my favorite Me plays of all time by Sam Shepard. And I think, you know, there really is an interesting artist there, but it's almost like his, his early success. I'm not, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I can't remember. Chad Smith played Austin. Oh, okay, great. Okay. Thanks Bruce for pulling Willis that Bruce Willis played up. Lee. So Chad Austin was in Tears of the Sun. He was in Hostage. He was in The Package, uh, the Andrew Davis movie. Oh. Uh, the Andrew Davis movie, I shouldn't say. Not a uh, Andrew Davis movie. Um, so I don't, I can't pull him out. Like, I, I, I don't remember Chad Smith. Maybe you guys do. But he clearly had a good relationship with Willis because he's in two of his movies, which Tears of the Sun I completely forgot about. But that would be so fascinating to see and to see him play that part. Because Lee is yeah, the drifter. Yeah. I think he's playing the boorish, bullying older Lee, brother, right? Yeah. right? As, as as I recall. But anyway, we we you know obviously we love Bruce Willis on on this show. Um, Eo, uh, goes <laughs> kind of goes without saying. But what I, just transitioning here, I, I you know we talked about this, and you as you said, Sean, are we giving this movie too much credit? Perhaps, right? As a Bruce Willis action movie, let's be honest, right? This is fair. This is a three star at best, I would say, right? It's 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 average. It's entertaining, but it's not. It's no. It's no Last Boy Scout, right? However, as a Dennis Farina character drama, <laughs> I think it's pretty great. You know, the movie that Dennis Farina is in is fascinating to me. And it runs parallel to the main movie. It's just slightly out of frame for most of the movie. Um, just to explain, Dennis Farina plays a character called Nick Dottillo, who is a high-ranking police captain. He's the uncle of Bruce Willis's character in the film. They butt heads throughout, um, but there's clearly like love and affection between them. And it's eventually revealed, spoiler alert, uh, that the serial killer whom everyone is chasing is in fact Nick's son and Hardy's former partner, Jimmy Dottillo. Uh, played by Robert Pastorelli. And Nick knows this throughout. He's been protecting Jimmy throughout until finally his conscience can no longer take it. You know, when I was watching it last night and I was looking at the bit where he's like holding the cross toward, towards the end, I'm like, this guy's in an Abel Ferrara <laughs> movie. Like, it's, 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 it's amazing. So the, the film is unusual because Farina goes on an actual character arc, right? And does real heavy lifting as an actor, usually he kind of shows up as a cop or a gangster and a heavy, and he's sort of, he's incredible, but he sort of stays the same, right? For the, for the most part, he's like a, the, maybe the fifth name on the call sheet. He's absolutely rock solid and is, is amazing. But this, he has a real arc. Uh, and, and, and it builds to this incredible confrontation with his own son, which is quite Reservoir Dogs-esque, Mex mm. multi-layered Mexican standoff. Stop biting that fucking gun on my dad, et cetera, et cetera. That's pretty good, Chris um, Penn. So my question... Thanks. My question for Sean, I'm going to shut up now. Now, you have met Dennis Freener, I believe, or you've interviewed him. I'm really interested in your thoughts 
and impressions of this legendary figure and how you would rank his performance in this film is this is that is this his best acting performance oh. and if not what it what what are your what are your thoughts on this on this icon that is farina having having i think interviewed him and studied yeah him i've told the years. story a couple times about interviewing him i want to say 10 15 years ago um and he i was very excited to speak with him he's from a long line of his i think liam you mentioned that the um the person who had a, a life and career before they got into Hollywood and, and him being a police officer mm -hmm. and being interested in that experience. And so I opened as I think was reasonable at the time in what I had hoped would be a career spanning interview to say like, Hey, Dennis, you're an amazing performer. How did you get started in the business? And he was like, ah, fuck Sean, Jesus. You want me to tell that fucking story again? No way. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he could not have been less interested in doing the Hey Geography thing whatsoever. He did not want to talk about Michael Mann. He did not want to talk about Midnight Run. He did not want to talk. And it wasn't because he disliked those things. He was just sick and tired of talking about old war stories, basically. And so we had a much different kind of conversation about um, his life and how he thought about his career. And um, it was it was a good talk, but it probably wasn't what I was hoping for, which is him telling war, you know, war stories of like making the transition to become an actor. He's a guy who obviously I'm like always very happy to see in in a movie. Um, at, up until this point, he had been primarily a TV actor. He of course had like legendary roles in Manhunter and in Midnight mm. Run, unforgettable roles, but he really wasn't a movie actor. Um, and so this is a big meaty part for a guy who was meant to just kind of seem intimidating and somewhat funny in series television, uh, network series television in the late 80s. So it's fascinating that he got this opportunity. Um, you know, you kind of feel like this opportunity led to things like Out of Sight and Saving Private Ryan and these like slightly more complicated roles, smaller roles, right. but more like emotional roles that he then is asked to perform because, you know, a Chicago cop, you would not think would be capable of this kind of work. Um, he, the person he reminds me of, actually, and the per person who I thought of while watching this is Joseph Wambaugh. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with him. He's a, he was a novelist in, in the 70s, yeah. and he was, yeah. he was an ex-cop. He was an LAPD cop for like 15 years. He basically he had a very, very similar career trajectory to my dad, who effectively worked all the way up until he became a detective sergeant, and then he led a team for a while, and then he retired, and then he wrote books about his experience. He wrote The Onion Field. He wrote The New Centurions. Right. Great, great movie, The New Centurions. Yeah, Choir Boys. Boys he wrote right. Black Marble. He's written some really good books. Um, and he's did the another Onion guy. Field get turned into a movie? It did. Is the Onion yeah. Field a movie? Yeah, with, with James um, Woods. There's. It was James on Criterion Woods. like a couple of years ago. I remember watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's sure. very good. It's a nasty movie. I mean, a lot of his movies are very unsparing about how unpleasant it was to live and work in mm -hmm. Los Angeles in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but he went on and had like a 30-year award-winning career as a novelist after his time as a police officer. That's not necessarily rare, but it's rare to do it in such a high-profile way, the same way that Farina did. I mean, Farina was a cop for 15 years in Chicago before he went on to become this kind of impressive actor with a very identifiable screen presence. When you see him He's probably going to be a guy who thinks he's smarter than you, who's got a little bit of a bad attitude, who's probably in a position of authority, whether it be a mob boss or a police captain. And he's just he's just damn good in everything he does. I think you're right, though, Phil, that he's unique and more um, emotionally bold in this movie than he's usually asked to be. 
I mean, he breaks down. He has a he breaks down and cries at the end of the film. You don't usually see Farina be vulnerable. You know, I think for the for the most part, I think I it, it think stands of. really in contrast to the you know Robert Pastorelli performance, who's the villain of the of the film, who's like, it's it's the thankless part because I think that twist is kind of like okay, like it's not as surprising as it should be, and it seems a little obvious, but it's not emotional because we have no investment in Robert Pastorelli's character of Jimmy, and so it comes off to me as a little like just the silly crazy guy at the end of. I don't think it would necessarily be more surprising, but I've often wondered if it'd be more interesting if Sizemore is the killer and this kind of fucked up persona where he like gets drunk at the fireman, the policeman's ball is like a performance and he's actually very calculated. Like I actually hadn't seen the movie in so long that I was like, wait, is Sizemore the killer? And I just think, unfortunately, Pastorelli, who, you know, also passed away. It's just not, he's barely a villain because he's barely in the movie. I think he's trying to do something which I, I, I like the choice, but not the execution with Pastorelli. I think he's trying to convey a childlike character, you know, um, hence the whole, like we, we talked about, he has the iconography of childhood, the, the, the police radio control cop. Oh, that's true. And yeah. the, who's the best cop. And, you know, he's sort of stuck in a state of arrested development, right? Like, um, you know, psychologically and and whatnot, but it, it it's too uh, broad. It's too it's too right. unsubtle. I think you know, like in the early scenes in First Blood, for example, Stallone talked about how before he kind of gets into the the dispute with Dennehy, um, that he he saw Rambo as a childlike character when he goes to visit the relative of his um, his lost uh, like buddy, you know, comrade in arms. He's playing, it's, it's very sort of innocent and sweet and kind of shy, the stuff that Stallone does really, really, really well. That's like a good example, I think, of doing a, a grown man uh, trying to convey a childlike character. What Past Pastorelli, I don't I think, just goes, he kind of swings for the fences. He always has, he always did as an actor. He, he tends to be very big, makes big, bold choices. Now, I do think it's an entertaining performance uh, as Jimmy DeTillo, but I don't, I, I, you also make a good point structurally, Liam, yeah, because he's, we only meet him for sort of 10 minutes and it's like, he's sort of a, you know, bit of a, bit of a jerk and a bit of a sort of weird, yeah, childish, self-pitying oddball. Then he jumps off the bridge. We don't have a ton of investment in, in him, in yeah. him as a character, but he has done, uh, he did a really interesting movie that I, I can't get out of my head. That was, I can't remember the American title in the UK. It was called Painted Heart when he also played a killer and it was opposite Will Patton and huh. B.B. Newworth. Um, and it was a sort of noir love triangle from, I think, the same year, 1993. And it had this extraordinary scene that always stayed with me because they were house painters. It's called The Paint Job in the there US. There you go. That's the one, yes. I don't know if you have if you guys have ever seen it, but it ends... I didn't even know that movie existed. It ends with yeah. a scene in this White House where the two... Um, the two male figures in the love triangle attack each other with paint cans. So it ends up being this sort of Jackson Pollock like uh, imagery. That's really, it's really kind of an amazing sort of lost noir uh, from that era of like the red rock Wests of that, of that time. And he's excellent in that. And I think he's really good in be cool. Uh, speaking of Elmore Leonard and the Farina connection where he, where he plays a character called Joe loop, who's a sort of colorful, um, you know, uh, gangster type character, but he his tonality as an actor is commensurate with the tonality of Be Cool, which is slightly over the top and slightly mm -hmm. exaggerated. But for it's not commensurate with uh, Farina, right? Who is cannot play a false note, 
you know, is just so naturalistic and authentic and whatnot. So I think he doesn't totally fit, but it is, uh, it's an entertaining performance, if not, I, I would say completely successful. That's my kind yeah, of two cents on it. It's an interesting time to Jimmy. cast him too, because it is deeply against type to Eldon, the, the painter he played on Murphy Brown. He was on Murphy Brown for years and years right. in the US at this time. And Murphy Brown was that. one of the 10 most watched shows in America for the stretch of time. This is right in the aftermath of the, you know, Dan Quayle controversies of that show. And so there was a real zoom in on that. And I, I, I don't remember how he intersected necessarily with Murphy's pregnancy, but, you know, he was like in Murphy Brown's house, his character, Robert Pastorelli's character. And so he was on in my house all the time. And he was this kind of laid back, avuncular, almost mm -hmm. sage-like painter figure and also like, you know, venting board for Murphy's frustrations and very different from the insane childlike killer in Striking Distance. <laughs> so for, for when I saw him, this might have been the first time that I saw him not in, a Murphy, not in Murphy Brown and he's different. Right. He's also of that class of, I mean, you know, we made the joke of the, the Reservoir Dogs, uh, Stop pointing the gun at my dad, but that Chris Penn, Robert Pastorelli, like those kinds of guys who were sort of movie stars in the early 90s, like Italian, larger-than-life figures, and it's it's just a really strange um, performance. I totally forgot about the Murphy Brown thing, and I have to watch... I have to go home and watch the paint job on Tubi. God bless Tubi. I think it's, it's on... It's pretty horny It's movie. on Tubi. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it. Should we move on to the action and just yeah. cover that? Action, like, uh, obviously, humor. you know, as an action movie... Um, is this successful on those terms? Are the set pieces memorable? I have to say the opening car chase um, with uh, with Mahoney and Willis in the car, and they're having like this casual conversation. Thumbs up. You know, it is is pretty is pretty fun. I love that like spin that they're like talking about his love life while they're in the middle of a car chase. But it did give me serious Simpsons McBain vibes, or more specifically. Uh, Chief Wiggum P.I., the, uh, the Simpsons <laughs> spinoff where Wiggum goes to New Orleans. <laughs> you know, it, it had, especially with the, the Brad Fiedel's uh, I just want to say, this, this is the only podcast that makes a reference to Chief Wiggum P.I. and Long Day's Journey in Tonight in one <laughs> hour-long recording session. Thank you very much. Challenge accepted on that, just going forward. <laughs> <laughs> this, I thought a little bit about Jade, another 90s thriller, much more erotic. Maybe it's just because, unfortunately, we just lost William Friedkin, but yeah. I think it's a pretty good chase. Um, I also think the river pursuit is good. Do you have a favorite chase in this movie, uh, Sean? Definitely the opening chase, which I think is really well done. I think that the the especially the riding down the kind of like bouncing off the hills as the cars are going down and down and down is like, I legitimately was like, Oh my, I'm not sure if I've seen that shot quite that way before. This is really seems legitimately authentic. Rowdy Harrington can direct action. You know, he, he can direct, he, he's a good action director, especially if you look at the finale of Roadhouse, which we talked about with that Mercedes stunt crashing into Ben Gazar's how this has similar, like quite, quite striking, no pun intended shot where the, the two cars, um, fly oh, over great. the hill out of control and then that becomes the the sort of trigger for the flashback later when the the full reveal of what happened to John Mahoney at Farina's hands uh comes out you know that stuff is is really well done and shooting like chases on a river no joke um, yeah. is yeah. i've never seen that you know that and that's going to be hard to film you know and it's pretty dynamic you is know? this movie um, funny though is the next question i don't know is it it's not, not particularly, I don't in so. my opinion. I mean, it's a problem of tone. It's there are things about it that are right? funny, but it is not humorous. Right. 
Well, Robert Pastorelli especially, it's like he's doing this like, I'm crazy thing at the end. And it just doesn't jive with the fact that like he's been taunting his cousin by murdering women in his life, including like an innocent uh, dispatcher who has like two minutes of screen time in the movie. It's like kind of wild. Yeah, poor Kim Lee. Speaking of, our final category of the anatomy of an action movie, The Lady, which is Sarah Jessica Parker as Joe Chrisman slash Emily Harper. Um, I'm just going to say it. I think Bruce Willis and Sarah Jessica Parker are attractive people, and I like looking at them in this movie. I just think that that's the fair thing to say about this. Do they have chemistry? Mm. Um... Let me Do speak they have of, chemistry? Please, I'm not let, sure. Let me, I don't, let I don't me, know. Let me speak about this. Are they... Uh, is there any, is anyone in this movie beautiful? Because I think that's kind of its charm. Like, even Bruce Willis, sir, sure, he looks like a movie star. Sure, Sarah Jessica Parker, great TV star of our time. But, like, this is actually kind of a movie full of regular-looking people. You know, like, Sarah Jessica Parker, by contrast to Robert Pastorelli and Tom Sizemore and Dennis Farina... Is of course incredibly beautiful. I mean, it's truly stunning on the on the waters on the yeah. three rivers. But you know, she's not Sharon Stone. Speaking of another star of this era, she's a kind of an unconventional choice for an mm. action for the female love interest slash internal affairs double agent in a Bruce Willis movie. I don't. She. she I, I'd love to know what number choice she was for this part. Was she fifth? seventh yeah like it's a, it's a weird part and on the one hand i i, I agree that there's like something really funny about their, that sex scene and also something kind of steamy about it at the same time because it feels very obligatory um but it's a movie full of like just regular looking pittsburgh pittsburghians pittsburghites i don't know what the right frame there is but that feels like very purposeful to me in a way yeah, she doesn't have much of a, it, yeah, it, it feels in a way, I actually think the love story does her a bit of a disservice. It felt like, why couldn't they just be, have respect? Uh, she, she, she's out to nail him as an internal affairs investigator and um, like gains, gains right. her respect. Um, and it didn't have to be romantic, but this is an era where, where of Hollywood, which doesn't have that kind of nuance, right? And they're like, hell, what, where's the sex scene? Get like, naked, get, right. Make it happen in one take, put the put the, the the soundtrack on it and just jam that scene in there. It needs to happen. And that stuff is, is clearly reshot, especially their pillow talk. If you look at their hair in that sequence, yeah, that's which is what always I'm a looking fun game at to in play. That scene. Okay. That that's how you find a reach. That's how you find a reshoot. But that, that I hate that love story. I think I think it doesn't it doesn't work. And other than that, I think she's an interesting character and a solid performance. But there's not too much uh, there's not too much substance 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 there. But she's always like a delightful presence uh, on screen. I think Sarah Jessica Parker. Those are and shout out to Kim Lee. Shout out to Kim Lee. Those are gone, our tenants, but not forgotten of an action movie. We live in a twilight world, and now I think we gamify the show for a couple minutes. Uh, no, next we have the awards. Uh, Sean, did you bring your tuxedo? Are you? It looks like you're wearing a tuxedo right now. Yes, I wear a tuxedo so every every podcast good. recording. I'm on. Yeah. You after doing the Oscars on the big picture, you were like, you know, this is the right fit. This feels good. Like this is me. I actually, so I'm going to put a tux on when I, I record from I do, my house. I do the Oscars night episode um, in athleisure, but then I do every other episode in 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 a full tuxedo with tails, and I have a cane and a top hat. Yeah. You, why don't you do more video potting? This is my question. <laughs> um I don't know. I don't I don't people don't need to see this face. This is not this is not this is not what oh, God stop. intended. Well that's why we're all podcasters. The Die Hard Oscars, aka the Action Movie Awards, where we're gonna be giving awards to these films. Phil, will you uh, list the 
the awards and the, the nominees? Yes, our first our first award is the John McClain Yippie Award for the best line. Uh, and please feel free to add. Um, these are my nominees, but please feel free to add. Uh, let me rephrase that. Brackets, racks, shotguns. I enjoyed that one. <laughs> let me rephrase that. I've never had a woman partner before. Neither have I, which is uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's retort uh, to Bruce Willis saying that. But the one that is my pick, there's an old Italian saying, don't scald your tongue on another man's soup, to which he responds, there's an old Irish saying, don't listen to old Italian <laughs> yeah! oh, That's it. I mean, as an Irish Catholic from Boston, that's it. That's it. It's got to be that. I thought that was I thought that was pretty yep. great. Oh uh, well, I have to give an honorable mention to uh, when he refers to at one point she's like, "What's with your family and the cops?" And he says, "Oh, it's a nationwide negative gene pool." I thought it was a pretty pretty incredible <laughs> thing for him to say midway through. The movie. Ne- our next award is the Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film, and our nominees are Dennis Farina as Nick Dottillo. Sarah Jessica Parker as Joe Crispin slash Emily Harper, and Tom Sizemore as Danny Dottillo. Nominees: Cast your ballots. I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a Farina head for real. Like I'm a deep, true Farina head. So yeah. with that, you know, I gotta go. They gave Dennis so Farina much to work Hive. with here. Yeah, for real. Um, I I do. I think that this is like legitimately one of the most fun. B plus character actor movies of the 1990s, and you could probably pick anybody: Brian James, Andre mm. Brower. Everybody in this is good. Andre Brower's, you know, one one real scene of cross examination is fantastically fun. But this is, I mean, for mm-hmm. they they should just remake this movie told through Farina's character's point of view. That would be an amazing movie too. Exactly, exactly. No, I agree. I think this is Farina's movie, and I love Sizemore, as you know, but. Uh, yeah, for, for me, for, for me, my, uh, my pick is definitely Farina. What do you think, Liam? Oh yeah, Farina. Yeah, 100%, yeah. 100%. All right. We'll move on to the Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the movie. Now there's an honorable mention here for Boat Preppy played by <laughs> Billy Hartung, but let's face it. This is a straight up cockfight between Brian James as detective Eddie Eiler Hardy's boorish nemesis in Pittsburgh Homicide, and Timothy Busfield as Officer Sacco, Hardy's antagonistic oh, colleague on the River Rescue Squad. Who you guys guy. got for Dick oh. of the movie? Uh, Brian James, for me. Brian James. Brian James, the, yeah. You know, the, the role he was born to play, which is the role he played in every single movie, which is the guy you just desperately want to punch <laughs> in the face. <laughs> uh, and he, and what do you mean I'm not helping? <laughs> It's next level in this film. Oh, he sucks <laughs> in the best way. He sucks in the best way. Yeah, I agree. Detective Eddie Isla all day. Um, and finally, the best death presented by Marco. No more table. God, it's like we're a bad radio show. We have to work on this. <laughs> we are. We have to work we on well, well, let's just own it. Things need to change. <laughs> now, there's a lot of parenticide, avunculicide, <laughs> and attempted fratricide in this Greek tragedy. Um, we've got uh, three nominees. John Mahoney's sloppy demise at the hands of his friend and relative, Dennis Farina. Uh, Farina's death at the hands of his own son, Robert Pastorelli. Ooh. And Robert Pastorelli being tasered in the mouth by his Ooh. own cousin, 
Uh, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Who you guys got for best death? I like. I, I think Eugene O'Neill introduced the idea of the of the taser in the mouth. That's just one thing I <laughs> yes, wanted to yeah. say. That was a. I remember. Yeah. I remember that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a, a direct crib from. Uh, what is that originally from? Um, Iceman Cometh, probably. It was. It was Taser Man Cometh. Ice originally. Man Cometh. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. From us. <laughs> Um, Taser Man, yeah. He rewrote it when the previews bombed in, Brom, <laughs> bombed in, in New Haven. They had to rework it, yeah. That was originally an action movie, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was. Up, it then, was set on, a, set on a river rescue squad, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Um, I, I really, I love Pastorelli's death. Legitimately original. I've not seen that before. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... It's pretty baller. And we'll never see it again. <laughs> the 90s was a golden age for tasers. Die Hard 2. Chekhov's taser once again makes its appearance in this movie. It, we see a taser early on. It comes back yeah. later on. All right. I, I would. Agree. So we're all in agreement that it's Pastorelli getting Pastorelli, tasered in the sure. mouth. Let's move on to our final section of the show, uh, which is the double jeopardy quiz where the scores can really change. So we've got three <laughs> trivia questions for, for you guys. Do you want to collaborate or or compete? I feel like Sean, you should compete because you're going to kick my ass on this, and I don't want to. I don't want to drag you down. I'm not like I'm, into the Pittsburgh Allegheny River. Um, okay, I will compete, but I, I'm no promises here. You know, I'm as I mentioned to you guys, I'm a little bit rusty on the podcasting front. It's been weeks since I've been in front of a microphone. No one knows. You didn't even have to admit that here. All right, the rules are very simple. There are three questions, and each time you can phone a friend, i.e., you can radio Al Powell, and I will give you one clue. Okay. Question number one. Dennis Farina plays Robert Pastorelli's father in the film. But can you guess the age difference between the two actors at the time of filming? 12 years? I was going to say 14 years. Ooh, little Price is Right action. Gotcha, gotcha. The answer is 10 years. Ooh! Ah, Farina was years. 49 and Pastorelli was 39. And yet they played father and son. See, this is tricky because Dennis Farina looks like he's 50 forever. Exactly. So it's tricky <laughs> yeah, it's, for you to pull this It's a weird one. one. This is hard. It's a weird one. You said it, Liam. He looked 49 and out of sight. So I don't know. I'm... <laughs> he looked 49 like five years ago. That's I true. Know, it's so weird. It's such a, yeah, he bends space and time. Question number two. Cult character actor Brian James would act opposite Bruce Willis again in which 1997 movie? The Fifth Element? Is correct. Oh, I thought it was Mercury Rising, but then I realized that might have been later on, so I don't know. Yeah. Brian Any... James plays a character called General Monroe. Mercury Rising Army. heads? In the... No. Okay, yeah, where cool. They, that's, that's the other thing on film Twitter. They're, they're just nonstop. Mercury Rising. Yeah. Hashtag. Die hard on a whatever. <laughs> Justice for Mercury Rising. rising yep. um, which we will provide eventually on this show. Right. All right. Oh, our, no. final, our, final, um, our final one is... We'll do, we'll do convoluted corner. Corner, 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 corner. corner. All right. Question number three. Striking distance touches on the idea of wrongful incarceration. Striking distance co-star Tom Sizemore made his big screen debut in which 1989 prison drama, which also explored this subject. Lockup? Yes. Lockup. Wow. It's lockup. Liam, you, Liam, you are correct. Sizemore plays Dallas. It also stars Die Hard 2's John Amos. Big Lockup so House. Technically that was you got a big one... movie in my house growing up. My dad loved Lockup. It's a fun one. There is a tiebreaker if you want it. And 
but we can we can we can let you we can put you out of your misery and let you go if you want. But would you would you like the tiebreaker or do you need to? Uh, you we're need to we're not tied. Liam has won, but I'd love I love trivia, so we should do should it. Should we do I, it? By the way, I've never seen Lockup, which I think I talked about on the Sylvester Stallone episode recently. Lockup is good. We seem to mention two things on every episode of this podcast. One is Paul Verhoeven, and the other is Lockup. I gotta check out Lockup. Jeez, I love John Flynn too. It's worth seeing. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a it's a fun kind of elevated B movie. Okay, you got well. I'm so I'm calling it that you got one each, and that neither of you okay. got the first okay. one. So we'll make let's make it interesting, right? Okay, final question. Another cult character actor, Tom Atkins, appears briefly here as Sergeant Fred Hardy, Bruce Willis's uncle. Tom Atkins had a particularly memorable demise in which iconic Joel Silver produced 1987 action movie. Lethal weapon. Is the correct answer. Bonus question. What tipple was Honsaka swigging at the moment of his death? Tipple? What was he swigging when Gary Busey showed up in the helicopter and then shot him? Eggnog. Ah, it's Eggnog. a Christmas Why? Because movie. Lethal Weapon is a Christmas movie. Sean, do you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Yes, of course. Of course I do. Um, thank thank God. I was hoping there was going to be a Halloween. Don't t- make sure Bill doesn't listen to this. Yeah. Don't worry, he won't. Um, I was hoping that uh, Atkins' question was going to be uh, um, a Halloween three question, but alas. Oh, are you are you uh, season season of the witch head? Huge season of the witch head. Huge. I love that movie. Me too. I love I like that too. movie. It's so weird. Silver Shamrock. First, there was season of the witch hive. Then there was Babylon hive, and soon there will be t- tenant hive. That's where we're all going with this. And that's, then striking distance hive. Me. That's the that's the final chapter. Speaking of which, any final thoughts on the movie, Sean? We've kept you for so long. It's been so great to have you on. Anything you want to? Anything you want to add? Um, this is a perfectly fine movie from the 1990s that I think people should watch if they like movies like this. If they haven't seen it um, and they've listened this far, they're deranged. But uh, it's nice of them to spend some time with us. <laughs> um, I had fun doing it. I think it's actually it's. I find it to be most of our listeners are deranged. <laughs> I really like talking about older movies that are not considered iconic. And so a lot of what I do is talk about iconic movies um, or, you know, beloved movies or movies that are under massive reconsideration. And this is, a, you know, what you guys are doing on the show is really fun. And um, it's, it's fun to spend some time in an otherwise forgotten corner of the universe. So thank you for having me. We're glad to have you. And we'd love to have you back to talk about another forgotten movie at some point in the future. So we'd love for you to join us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been an absolute blast to have you. And we're we're huge fans of your of your of the rewatchables and the big picture and, and you in general. And it was a real treat to have you on the show. So thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Liam. Appreciate it, guys. Phil. Yes. That was a lot of fun. That was. And we got in there. On striking distance. We got in there. Hopefully it was so much fun that you're gonna take a minute and you're going to Click on your phone there and click five stars and say that Striking Distance episode was a lot of fun. Maybe you'll write a review. Loved the Striking Distance episode with Sean Fennessy. Maybe Not you'll to tell put words friend. in your mouth, but... Yeah, but say you love <laughs> that it. That type of thing. Say you love it. <laughs> uh, and please tell a friend. If you have an action-loving friend, if you know some dads in your life, you just listen to four 40-ish dads, three, excuse me, not four, three 40-ish dads talk about uh, a forgotten uh, thriller from 1993... Uh, there may be people like that in your life. Perhaps your dad. Maybe you're six years old and you're listening to this podcast. I don't know. <laughs> but tell someone that you know about this podcast. Uh, you can find us on X. 
You can find us on X, formerly Twitter. I'm at Liam G. Billingham, and I'm often tweeting about Tenant. Phil, how's X treating you lately? Yeah, I'm, I'm on it a bit more now, um, even though there are, let's just say, um, there are some issues with the site and yeah. uh, some, of the, uh, some of the things that go on there. But I will say I have found a lovely community of film, uh, film fans, uh, and I, I tweet about more than just hard-boiled now. You know, so I'm I'm growing, you know, on that on that you're, medium. You're you you know you it's an it's a it's an investment in your in in your time, and you have to decide how much you want to be on there. But there are great people on it, and we've had a lot of fun talking with them about striking distance. Absolutely. If you have thoughts on this episode, thoughts on the relationship between Chief Wiggum P.I. and Long Day's Journey and Tonight and how they, if you play them at the same time, like a Pink Floyd record in Wizard of Oz, they sync up. You know, if if, if you have thoughts on that or anything else action movie related, I need to be stopped. Please email us at diehardoab at gmail.com and a representative will get right back to you. Phil. Yes. What's next on the show? Next on the show is Demolition Man. <gasps> Sylvester Stallone, yeah. Wesley Snipes. Sandra Bullock. Dennis Classic. Leary. Who directed Demolition Man? Uh, Marco Brambilla. His only film, right? Isn't his, his only, only film. He was only... uh, an artist, I believe, a performance artist. It's going to be a good one. It's a it's a popular movie. It's a terrific movie. It's a wildly entertaining movie, and I think it has something pretty interesting to say about action movie archetypes. So Ooh. we'll be getting into that. Uh, and we have very a great soon. guest. We're not going to we say do. who it is, but we have a very exciting guest. Uh, we still have to record with him, which is why we aren't saying who it is, but we're really excited. And uh, it's actually going to be the first time I've seen this movie in its entirety since 1994. I'm going to say that. So I'm excited to revisit it. And um, also, if you're interested in Demolition Man content, I tell the same story about seeing the trailer for this movie with my dad before The Fugitive on both our episode for Cliffhanger with Jamel Bowie and... The Fugitive with Adam Volerich and Dom Nero of Eye of the Duck. So if you haven't listened to those episodes and you want to hear my really stupid story and I can't believe I told it twice, go check out those episodes. And if you're a fan of the Rewatchables and you enjoyed Sean's guesting today, we also had uh, Rewatchables regular Kyle Brandt Ooh, yes. on last week for uh, the, our Hard Target Deep Dive, which was an amazing episode as well. Talk about a mensch. Kyle Bryant's. We're just, we've we're just swimming been, in menches. I don't know what's going on over at the Ringer, but they got They're some great, nice great people. people. They really <laughs> are. <laughs> we're it's so cool. Um, all right, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorne. and we'll be back next time with some new FBI guys on the streets of San Angeles. Whoa! I, I mixed it up. I, 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 I liked it. <laughs> I the music's jazz. already fading in, so nobody can hear this. <laughs> Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a blank. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.